Hi Teamsters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience. Where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. I almost forgot my name for a second. I know. I would your face was like I forgot how you forgot the intro. It's okay. We forgot it like a couple weeks ago. I don't know what it is it's okay. about the intro, but season two intro is throwing me for a loop. That's okay. Listen. I think I'm still recovering from our long break. That's fair. But we're back. We've been back, girl. We've been back. We're like halfway Gonna through. Be back. Oh my gosh. Yes. What? What? I'm loving season two. I'm having so much fun. I am too. And today we're having fun because we are drinking our last cocktail recipe. And this one has a little secret behind it. Or does it? What's the secret? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the secret is that this is a uh, mocktail. Mocktail. But you wouldn't know that by drinking it. No, God, it's great. I love it. I Sometimes I just want like a bougie mocktail. I love a like, Especially mocktail. in the afternoon. Like if I need to be productive. Sometime in, sometimes in the summer, like sitting outside with a boozy-ish, mm-hmm. not boozy mocktail. Right. On the front yard, reading a book. I can still be productive afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but this mocktail is called Conspiracy Theory. And I'm covering conspiracy theories today. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Which we didn't. I literally just had the epiphany before we started recording. And I had a gasp moment. As you like ruined what you're going to be doing for me. Because I didn't know. Everyone else knows because it's in the title of our episode. Whatever. But you gasp and you're like, it's conspiracy theory. And I'm covering conspiracy theories. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? I'm actually a genius. (laughs) It turns out. We did it on purpose. I did it with my powers. Um, So I don't remember how we're releasing these, but um, either last episode or a couple episodes ago, our last Pride episode, we talked about an interesting... um, topic to talk about in our intro which Mm -hmm. is the highest rated green fried green tomatoes oh yep fried green tomatoes on rotten tomatoes on rotten tomatoes i just call it fried green tomatoes (laughs) the highest rated rotten tomatoes that Uh, there are yes so this is called the 100 percent club (gasps) Which I hate that they took that. What a cute name for a podcast. The 100% Club? Yeah, that is cute. That'd be super cute. So this is the 100% Club where every movie isn't perfect, but their tomato meters are. Wow. I I did not write that. Yep, super cute. And this is from RottenTomatoes.com. So perfect. We love that. Okay. Here is every film that has at least 40 reviews... That is also 100% on the tomato score. And I have not heard of some of these. Leave No Trace. Cool. 2018. A surprising one. uh, Toy Story 2. Toy Story 2? The second one has 100%. TBD about the first. Okay. But the second one's the one where Jesse comes in. So five Mm -hmm. stars for me, for sure. Um. Honeyland, Minding the Gap, His House. I haven't heard of half of these, any of these. Crip Camp, that one I have heard of. Have you seen Crip Camp? No. It's a documentary um, about 
kids with disabilities going to camp. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was really well done. It came out in 2020. Let's see. Toy Story 1 did make the cut, so it's Good. not just Toy Story 2. I love Story that 2. it's out of order, though. They're like, Toy Story 2 is first. Oh, for sure. Okay. I'm fast-forwarding to ones that we might know. Singing in the Rain. Oh, wow. 1952 has 100%. Huh. Do-do-do. I should have put in movies that we would also recognize. The Terminator. Really? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ray will be excited about that. Aren't we all excited about that? I'm neutral. <laughs> 12 Angry Men, which is... What? Yep. No fucking way. Yep. 12 Angry Men, 1957. Okay, do better. Uh, Pinocchio, 1940. Hmm. Pinocchio is kind of scary. It's super scary, actually. They turn into donkeys. Yeah, they do. Um, OJ, Made in America. Not the orange juice, but the Simpson. Okay, got mm-hmm. it. Um, I was really hoping that we would know more of these. Maybe the movies we like are just not liked by others. I could see that. We do really love cult movies. Mm-hmm. Um, Speaking of which, um, I have finished the documentary about the Duggars. <gasps> oh my gosh. How was it? It was okay. It was okay. We talked about a couple episodes ago that I wanted to cover Bill Gothard. Um, They didn't go as much into um, him as they did into the Duggars. So it's not quite the angle that I'm going to be covering eventually. So that made me feel good. Good, good, good. I'm glad. It leaves space for both of us. There's space for all of us here in this podcast on this channel. All right, so I just scrolled through this whole list, and those were the only ones that I recognized. Great. So clearly we have horrible taste in movies. (laughs) Yeah, that's okay. But today we're not talking about movies. Today we are talking about psychology and history. We are back to our normal scheduled programming. Um, Well, we know I'm I'm talking about conspiracy theories because I already kind of brought it up. Right. What are you talking about? So, I am talking about the Harlow's rhesus macaque monkey experiments. Okay. Yep. Um, I I feel so weird, like, just diving in rather than, like, giving you a question or a prompt. So, I have a question or a prompt for you this time. Okay. Um, Have you seen the flat affect experiment? No. Okay. So, this is a mom or a presumptive mom who is interacting with her baby and it's being filmed and like the baby's super engaged. Mom is happy and smiling. They're clearly enjoying each other. And then she turns away from the baby. And when she looks back, like she has a completely flat affect. So the baby's still playing and giggly and mom is just like not tuned in. She doesn't engage. She doesn't make eye contact. She doesn't smile. At first the baby's like a little concerned and like starts, Mm -hmm. you know, kick in like hey mom you know i'm still here mm-hmm. i'm still being cute come mm-hmm. look at me um and then the baby tries to or when that doesn't work the baby starts like freaking out a little bit and screaming and crying and like y- you can see he's like trying to get to her just thinking like if i can touch her she'll be fine we can connect again like, yeah he's stretching all of his little limbs trying to connect with her it lasts 30 seconds it's not very long. Okay, because this is making me uncomfortable. Yeah, this whole episode's going to make you uncomfortable. Then. Oh, fuck. 
This experiment highlights the importance of interacting with kids and like having that connection, being tuned into your children. But this experiment was not the first of its kind. And in fact, the first of its kind was far more deep and mm-hmm. gross and we hate it. Yeah. Um, it's been a while since we've done an experiment episode. So this is the Harlow experiments of the 1950s and 60s. Oh, what a great time period for experiments. Sure. Before, Am I right? Before the review boards, before you had to get shit approved. Before child labor. <laughs> <laughs> So, Harry Frederick Harlow was born October 31st of 1905, and he was born to Mabel and Alonzo Harlow Israel. Mm. I like the name Mabel. I like the name Mabel, too. Yeah, it's cute. It's cute. He was born and raised in Fairfield, Iowa, and was the third of four brothers. Little is known about his early life, but an unfinished autobiography Um, does reveal that his mother was cold to him and that he was known to have experienced bouts of depression throughout his life. So we have a little foreshadowing here. He started writing this book, never finished, and we know his mom maybe wasn't super tuned in. Mm -hmm. Um, So he grew up, went to a few colleges and universities, including Reed College, which is in Portland, Oregon, and Stanford University, where, interestingly, he declared a psychology major after having really shitty grades in English, which was his first major. Huh. And that's interesting because I started out as a psychology major and then switched to English. Mm. So, you know, a little link up there. Yep. He continued his master's at Stanford, where he worked with a well-known animal behaviorist, Calvin Perry Stone, and later received his Ph.D. in 1930, and changed his last name, which was Israel, to Harlow. And he made the change because one of his mentors suggested that having a seemingly Jewish last name might hurt him. Oh, great. Even though his family wasn't Jewish. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Cool, cool, cool. It's shitty. We hate it. Okay, so here's where things get interesting. He completed his dissertation and then accepted a professorship at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He was not able to get the psychology department at the university to give him a science lab, so he took matters into his own hands and acquired a vacant building down the street and renovated it into what later became known as the primate lab. Oh my god, hate it. Hate it! Doesn't this sound like the beginning of a horror story? Yeah, it really does. It's the beginning of 28 Days Later. Like, just imagine a creepy, like kid grew up didn't have a good relationship with his mom goes to college and becomes a professor and gets his own warehouse to create a lab acquire a building he got some of the students to help him set it up and uh later like helped those students graduate so Mm. that's all great um He had some really ethically controversial practices that we're going to get into. However, he was fascinated by maternal relationships. We know where that comes from. (laughs) Um, He was interested in dependency and attachment, the impact of social and social isolation. This research led to an understanding of the importance of caregiving and companionship to social and cognitive development. Fast forward, he dies in 1981. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. 
So this is weird psychology in the way of who was conducting the research, not who was participating in the research, which still has an impact because of the interpretive bias, but a lot of what he researched and observed like still makes sense logically. So we'll we'll check it out and talk about it. Okay. So our guy Harlow had several experiments. First, he was really interested in the rhesus macaque monkeys, and that's what he used for all of his experiments. What is a rhesus macaque monkey? I'm going to give you a moment to Google it, but it's basically what you think of when you think of, like, a pet monkey. Oh, okay. Was it, like, like from Friends? Yes. Okay. I think. Was that? We'll Google it. Um, So what he would do is he did not have a really great supply of monkeys, Um, so he ended up like breeding his own and, um, he would take the infant monkey when it was like a few hours old and let it be raised by a quote unquote surrogate mother. So, okay. His, it is not like the monkey from friends. It is, it has a red face and it's brown. But it's like the same size as the monkey from Friends, I think. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a little bit bigger. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Dolly's snoring. But we yeah, love her. it's a cute monkey. It's a very cute monkey. So we have a whole bunch of those in this primate lab. And mothers are giving birth to these babies. And then our guy Harlow takes the babies to be raised by surrogate mothers. Um, In his first experiment, babies are exposed to two surrogate mothers. The first is just a wire cage that uh, doesn't really have much of a face to speak of. And the second is a cloth-covered surrogate mother that has a wooden face. That sounds creepy. All of it. Super. I watched a YouTube video. Oh, I've seen it With an interview. Oh, it's super weird. It's sad. So sad. So he explores whether the infants had a, a preference for the bare wire mothers or the cloth-covered mothers in different situations. For example, the wire mother holding a bottle with food while cloth mothers hold on to nothing, the wire mother holding nothing while the cloth mother held food, etc. The monkeys overwhelmingly chose the cloth mother with or without food, in some instances only visiting the wire mother that had food when needing sustenance. That makes that, that checks out. Yeah. So what he was trying to prove or, I guess, disprove is that children bonded with their parents because their parents provided them with food. Like that was the early thought was kids don't really need affection. They need to survive. Mm -hmm. So higher Maslow. Right. Exactly. Um, So the, the thought then would be if a wire cage is providing food to the monkey and meeting like that basic need that the monkey would feel some form of connection to it. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case. Right. So he took this a step further and the horrible video I saw on YouTube and scared the little baby monkeys (gasps) uh, with this like robotic thing that looked menacing. Stop scaring the monkeys. Don't scare the babies. Um, the infants would, when they saw this thing, would run to their cloth mother um, and, like, <laughs> seek comfort from her by, like, rubbing his face against the cloth. I bet. Mommy. I, I know. 
And then um, when it calmed down a little bit, would like feel brave and, you know, make faces and like try and scare the thing, Uh, like gnash its own teeth to try and scare the monster. Infants who did not have surrogate cloth mothers or those with only the wire mother would stay fearful, subsequently huddling in a ball, rocking themselves, sucking their thumbs and screeching. Oh, my God. This is so sad. This is so depressing. Jeez, Carrion. Yeah, I'm sorry, guys. (laughs) It it reminds me a little bit of little Albie, who, like, was scared for the sake of understanding fear. Yeah. And these monkeys were super tortured. Like, this is not... Yeah. Yeah. Um... We probably should, like, include some kind of warning at the beginning of this episode Mm -hmm. for, like, animal cruelty, because this counts. Harlow and his associates would care for the physical needs of babies, um, of, like, the baby infants, to see how they would behave versus being raised by their mother. So the socially isolated infants um, ended up becoming really reclusive and clung to cloth diapers and often showed signs of fear or aggression. So his second big experiment, he he did this first one, and we're going to talk about the impacts of it. But then he had his second big experiment, which included isolation chambers. No. Do you know what they were called? The hole. The pits of despair. Shut the fuck up. Literally. Pits of despair. So these were like tall uh, chambers that monkeys could not climb out of. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, And he would separate the infant monkey, have, like, maybe the metal wire mom in there, like, providing sustenance, and then um, would leave them in this isolation chamber for different periods of time, like, wanting to understand the impacts of social isolation. So... He would leave them sometimes for days, weeks, months, and years. <gasps> Shut the fuck up. He found that 90 days was the critical period. Their behaviors would be really dramatic and debilitating when they were first like reintegrated into with other monkeys um, of about the same age and would slowly like start to adapt back to normal monkey behavior. However, after the 90 days of isolation, no amount of exposure to surrogate mothers or peers could cause the subjects to fully alter their behavior or make up for the emotional damage. Oh, my God. 90 days. That's that's tragic. That really is. In some cases, severely isolated subjects would develop eating disorders or other like seeming mental health issues. I know we don't typically ascribe mental health issues to animals but like that's literally what this is like you're evoking anxiety and depression um but monkeys would experience this upon reintegration with their peers and subsequently died Mm. which sounds a lot like failure to thrive yeah you know like when babies don't have the connection they don't eat they become depressed they stay really small um and we know that like children can die from failure to thrive so what we know about Harlow was that he was curious about this bond and the basis for maternal bonding. The historical theory of attachment was that an infant would form an attachment with a caregiver that provides food, and his experiment suggests that the attachment develops as a result of the mother providing tactile comfort, suggesting that infants have a biological need to touch and cling to something for emotional support. So, 
we talk about it earlier, but like while I was writing my notes, I kept thinking about kids in foster care or who are living in like congregal communal mm-hmm. living spaces. And um, I know he's specifically talking about infants bonding. However, I wonder like what's the implication for older children or for adults who are living in isolation and don't have those biological needs met. And I remember you and I talked a lot over COVID about like being touch starved mm-hmm. um, and like just not having hugged anybody mm-hmm. or not being around people for extended periods of time and what that does to your anxiety and depression. And you and I were both adults at that point. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, it's horrible. Um, but as human beings, especially in this case, young uh, monkeys. So as mammals, as living things, Um, we can only handle so much isolation. So before this research, psychologists tended to believe that showing affection towards children was like a sweet or even sentimental gesture that had no real purpose. The thought was that affection would only spread disease and lead to adult psychological problems. So, quote, when you are tempted to pet your child, remember that mother's love is is a dangerous instrument, behaviorist John Watson warned parents, which is terrifying. Like, they were, obviously, they were afraid of spreading diseases because they didn't have medication, but they knew, like, you get sick when you touch other people, right? Mm -hmm. And kids are gross and snotty. Yes. Um, So you could get sick, you could make your kids sick if you're spreading germs, which I understand, wash your hands more. Um, But believing that affection would lead to adult psychological problems is a really interesting jump for me. Like, it's this idea that we're afraid that children will be soft if Mm -hmm. we tell people, you know, or like you could spoil your kid. Yeah. There's no such thing as spoiling a baby. Baby's needs are are to be held and touched and cuddled and loved. You Mm -hmm. can't spoil a baby. Um, So when Harlow came along with his research, he really revolutionized this topic. And subsequently, folks have said that he learned how to quantify or measure love or certainly attachment. Like, I don't know that we can say that he measured love. Some people argue that Like, if you seek comfort from something, you love that thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe he measured the infant's love, but can love be one-sided? That's a whole philosophical thing. Yeah. But more appropriately, he measured the um, effects of the absence of love and absence of attachment. He noted that very little attention had been devoted to the um, experimental research of love, and at the time, most observed observations were largely philosophical and anecdotal. Quote, because of the dearth of experimentation, theories about the fundamental nature of affection have evolved at the level of observation, intuition, discerning guesswork, whether these have been proposed by psychologists, sociologists, or anthropologists, physicians, or psychoanalysts, he noted. Many of the existing theories of love centered on the idea that the earliest attachment between a mother and a child was merely a means for the child to obtain food, relieve thirst, and avoid pain. However, Harlow believed that this behavioral view of a mother-child attachment was an inadequate explanation. So he accomplished that, right? Like his first experiment accomplished that over and over. 
I think the biggest issue I have with the Harlow experiments is they didn't stop there. Mm -hmm. Like, if you were just trying to prove that there's more to attachment and bonding than food, then the cloth versus wire monkey... Could have done it. Could have done it. Yeah. Do we have to put baby monkeys in the pits of despair? (laughs) Uh, No, we do not. I'm going to say no. Hang on, I'm thirsty. Dolly's looking real cute over there. Dolly gets cuter every time I see her. I like that she chose my side to curl up on. Yeah. So I get to wrap She's her. sick of me. She sees you all the time. She never sees me. Gosh, she's cute. Okay. Harlow's work, um, as well as important research by psychologist John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth, helped influence key changes in how orphanages, adoption agencies, social service groups, and child care providers approach the care for children. Harlow's work generated a lot like perpetuate a lot more research on love, affection, and interpersonal relationships. So in some capacities, like he's really a front runner with all of this research. Um, but clearly like something's going on Mm -hmm. mentally there. If you are essentially torturing monkeys. Sure. It doesn't feel like science science. at that point. In the name of science, no. Um, and his personal life was marred by conflict. Um, his wife became terminally ill while they were together, and he developed a really severe alcoholism issue, developed depression, which came first, who's to say. Eventually, he became estranged from his own children. I wonder what that relationship was like. Mm-hmm. Like, if you know all of this about connection and attachment, what was your relationship like with your own children? Right. Probably not great if you then right. became estranged from them. Well, and if your partner is terminally ill... There's, you know, that comes with a whole... Oh, my gosh. So many other... Yeah. You know, feelings of, you know, not being able to connect with them as well. Absolutely. If they're physically ill. So it's it's horrible to, like, be studying all the social isolation and all of this attachment issues and then to be experiencing that in your own life. Right. Probably because your mother was also not very attached to you. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's truly generational. Colleagues frequently described him as sarcastic, mean-spirited, chauvinistic, and cruel. Cruel, absolutely. Yeah. Um, He was eventually treated for his depression and did return to work, and his interest shifted when his wife passed away. He was no longer focused on maternal attachment and instead developed an interest in depression and isolation. Yeah, that checks out. Yeah. Some researchers cite the experiments as a factor in the rise of the animal liberation movement in the United States. So, like, once people really figured out what he was doing, they're like, hey, hey, this may not be great. And because of that, his work has been really highly criticized. His experiments have been seen as unnecessarily cruel and unethical. Um, And while they did initially have this important impact on the study of attachment, they had a limited value in attempting to understand um, the effects of deprivation on human infants. So thank goodness this man was never given humans. Oh, for sure. It was clear that the monkeys in the study suffered from an emotional harm due to being reared in isolation. This was evident when the monkeys were placed with a normal monkey reared by a mother, and they would sit huddled in a quarter in a state of persistent fear and depression 
Oh, poor. It's just like little Albies everywhere. I know. Little monkey Albies. Little monkeys. Um, I feel like I had a thought here. And I'm trying to remember what it was, but I don't think I wrote it down. Darn. Well, did they, do you know if they bred these monkeys? They did. Thank you. That was my thought that I think I forgot to write down. Epigenetics. Um, Epigenetics. So what I remember reading is that the children, like these little infant monkeys, when they did grow up and reproduced, they did not pursue an attachment with their offspring. Mm, So yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Because if you don't have it, you don't know how to give it. Yeah. Um, And obviously, like, there wasn't talk therapy for monkeys. Um, Still isn't. That's a market (laughs) we need to get into. That seems like it'd be a fun market. (laughs) Sponsored by. Sponsored by Harlow, because he needs to right some wrongs. But, um, yeah, so it, it was generational at that point. Like, he studied the impact of this um, isolation across multiple generations. I don't know how much value he saw in that. Um, I mean, we could hazard a guess that he, the ways that he saw that play out in his own life may impact the way that he understood the experiences of the monkeys, mm-hmm. maybe, but that was not well documented. Harlow's experiment is sometimes justified as providing a valuable insight into the development of attachment and social behavior. But at the time of the research, there was already a dominant belief that attachment was related to physical rather than emotional care. And those ideas were already starting to shift. Mm -hmm. Do the benefits outweigh the cost? The cost being the The suffering of animals. Yeah. and attachment theory is really important. And that's what the face, the flat affect experiment that we talked about at the beginning is really focusing on is this idea of attachment mm-hmm. and having and forming healthy attachments. And attachment theory has been studied since the 1960s um, to figure out how children form these attachments and then what are the consequences of not having them. So this did spur a lot of that research Um, I think it was just mostly taken too far. Um, One thing it really did do, though, was convince people about the importance of emotional care in hospitals, children's homes, daycares, social services settings, um, and like group living for young children. So as a direct result of his research, there were active changes made to the ways that adults were caring for children. And for that, I think, you know, there was some some real, some decent stuff that came out of all of his research. Mm. So. I mean, I learned about it in AP history or AP psychology (laughs) class in 2009. Yeah. And we're still talking about it. Yeah. So I, I remember learning about it, too. I think the thing that stood out for me is I didn't remember all the trauma for the animals behind it. Like, oh, I knew it sure. had something to do with attachment. But the pit of despair. Yeah, the pit of despair. We didn't talk about that. I mean, so a lot of a lot of people are still commenting on this and still like processing the impact on psychology today. Um, and. I guess with every experiment that we've talked about so far, like there are pros and cons. This is just one of those that like 
kind of sucks to hear about, but also really does highlight the value of having a secure attachment Um, to be scared and still run to an inanimate object because it feels safe and secure, um, I think says a lot about our need to connect. And it's not just, I mean, it should be two-sided. Like you, you need a parent or a caregiver or an adult in your life to respond to you. Um, but even in the animal world, like there's just this intrinsic need to be comforted and to feel safe and secure. Yeah. I think there's an interesting thing that goes along with parenting about like, what is the bare minimum? What is being a good parent? What is being a provider? What is being, you know, every, there's all these roles that people can play. And I think that all of these parenting styles are trying to navigate through like what is absolutely necessary and people are so like opinionated about right and wrong but Mm -hmm. really I mean if you're providing for your kids and you have a great house and they go to a great school that's great but like have you hugged your kid today right Absolutely. And I think the other, the flip side of that is there's this belief that families who have children who are in the foster care system aren't good parents. And I don't know that that's, I don't feel like that's true. I think no one sets out to be a bad parent. I've never met a parent who didn't love their child. Um, I'm sure due to some mental, you know, conditions that that happens. But by and large, like, people want to be good parents and they want to love their kids. They just don't know how to mm-hmm. um, either for generational reasons or trauma or um, addiction. Like there's a lot of things that can get in the way of that, but like doing your best and hugging and loving on your kid is a good step in the right direction because it seems like that is the most basic need. Wow. Yeah. Great job. No pits Thank of the despair you. here. No, no, not unless we're watching Princess Bread. Nope, 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 nope. Well, great job, girl. Thank you so much. So we're going to take a break and come back and talk about conspiracy theories while drinking conspiracy theories. Hell yeah. All right. So it wouldn't be a pod without an odd season unless we covered some conspiracy conspiracy theories, theories. right? So we're circling back. If you haven't heard the first episode on conspiracy theories, go back and check out season one. The first two episodes on conspiracy theories. We have two, right? Just one. Just one? Just one. Oh, today's two. Today is two. Welcome back. We're here. So today I'm going to do a shallow dive into several conspiracy theories. Um, Some I'm sure that you've heard of, but others maybe new. My notes this week come from a fantastic life science article, um, which we'll be linking in the show notes, but it's called 20 of the Best Conspiracy Theories. Love it. Is there one that God is a crab? Because I heard that conspiracy theory recently. No. Apparently, God is a crab because he created men and women, and we have two arms and two legs, which is four limbs. And if you were to put men and women together, there would be eight limbs, and crabs have eight legs. 
Wow. And that was the whole theory. Crabs have eight legs. Don't they? Spiders? Crabs. Crabs have eight legs. I don't know. If not, we're going to take that out. <laughs> <laughs> I saw this stupid little TikTok about it. And I was Do like, crabs this have is eight hilarious. Legs? Mr. Krabs, does, does he have eight legs? Speaking of crabs, Mr. Krabby Patty. Crabs do have eight legs. Okay, yep. good. They you have heard eight it here legs first. And then two little pinchers. Two pinchers. And a partridge in a pear tree. All right, so we proved that that's true, basically, yep. is what we've just done. Great. What about Princess Diana's murder? Have you heard any conspiracy theories surrounding that? Oh, my gosh, so many. Like, it's already been proven that it wasn't a fluke, right? Has it not officially been? It hasn't officially been proven because it was the crown who kind of did it. TBD. TBD. Though I did hear that Meghan and Meghan Markle and uh, Harry, Harry Styles, Styles <laughs> um, very nearly had a car accident kind of in a similar way recently. Yeah. yeah. So conspiracy theory link up there. Yikes. So within hours of Princess Diana's death on August 31st, 1997, in a Paris highway tunnel, conspiracy theories started to swirl. As was the case with the death of JFK, the idea that such a beloved and high-profile figure uh, could be killed so suddenly was such a shock. This was especially true for Princess Diana. Uh, Royalty, you know, they die of old age, uh, political intrigue, or eating too much rich food. They don't get killed in a common, you know, by a common drunk driver. Yeah. Yeah. Unlike many conspiracy theories, though, it is one, this one had a, a billionaire promoting it. So Muhammad Al-Fayed, the father of Dodi Al-Fayed, who was killed along with Diana, Al-Fayed claimed that the accident was in fact an assassination by British intelligence agencies at the request of the royal family. Al-Fayed's claims were examined and dismissed as baseless by a 2006 inquiry. Of course they were. The following year at Diana's inquest, the coroner stated that, quote, the conspiracy theory advanced by Muhammad Al-Fayed has been minutely examined and shown to be without any substance, end quote. On April 7, 2008, the coroner's jury jury concluded that Diana and Al-Fayed were unlawfully killed due to the negligence of their drunken chauffeur and pursuing paparazzi. Hmm. The conspiracy theory was also believed by P- Prince Harry, though, who said in a tw- uh, January, who said in January 2023 that he believed she could still be alive for many years after the crash. I mean, he was a kid. Yeah, you know. Yeah, absolutely. He told Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes that he thought she may have faked her own death, and that they would be re- reunited at some point. Oh, that's sad. That's so sad. I mm. wish that that was the case for him. Yeah. Subliminal advertising. Have you ever watched a movie and suddenly got the munchies? Yes, literally every time. Or sitting on your sofa watching TV and suddenly get the irresistible urge to buy a new car? No. (laughs) That one has never happened. If so, you may be a victim of a subliminal advertising conspiracy. Proponents of this conspiracy theory include Wilson Brian Key, author of Subliminal Seduction, and Vance Packard, author of The Hidden Persuaders. Both of those are very sexual titles. Mm, Very sensual. Sensual. 
both of whom claimed that subliminal and subconscious messages in advertising were rampant and damaging. Though the books caused a a public outcry and led to FCC hearings, much of the books, much of both books have since been uh, discredited. And several key studies of the effects of subliminal advertising were revealed to have been faked, which you might have to cover at some point. In the 1980s, concerns over subliminal messages spread to brands such as Styx and, uh, or excuse me, in 1980, concerns over subliminal messages spread to bands such as Styx and Judas Priest, with the latter brand even being sued in 1990 for allegedly causing a teen suicide with subliminal messages. Like, what evidence do we have here? Well, we don't. The case was dismissed. Okay. Yes. Um, I mean, think about like Marilyn Manson. They played Helter Skelter backwards because they thought there was subliminal messaging. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 Floop is a madman. Help us save us. Floop is a madman. Help (laughs) us save us. Um, subliminal mental processing does exist and can be tested, but just because a person perceives something, a message or advertising, for example, uh, subconsciously means very little by itself. There is no inherent benefit of subliminal advertising over regular advertising. I mean, I think that they're kind of getting those two confused. Oh, for sure. Um, and I'll definitely have to cover subliminal messaging. It's actually on my list. Ooh. So maybe we'll do that soon. And I love have that. Have a little link up. I did um, my senior. Did you have to do a senior exit in high school? Yes. Okay. So my senior exit was on the food industry and about advertising. Really? And like how they put, you know, food for kids lower on the shelves so they can yeah. reach it. And, and you know, and there's candy by the checkout aisle. Mm-hmm. Little things like that, uh, specifically about children, but um, but not even that. But like, you know, what what are preferences that adults have? What colors are put red in certain ways? Red and yellow make you feel hungry, mm-hmm. or whatever red, the color science there is. Yellow leather, yeah, yep. Um, mine was the preschool to prison pipeline. Oh, mm-hmm. yep, and Do lack they? of early childhood education. So it's very fitting that yeah. I still do this work. Yeah. And that we're friends. (laughs) So there is no inherent benefit of subliminal advertising over regular advertising. And any more than there would be in seeing a flash of a commercial instead of the full 20 seconds. Getting a person to see something for a split second is easy. Filmmakers do it all the time. We talked about that in um, Fight Club. Yes. Mm -hmm. It was also... um, Everything everywhere all at once had a lot of like those flashes of like just yeah. really random things. But you're yeah. right, we did talk about that in Fight Club. Yeah. But getting a person to do or buy something based on split seconds is another matter entirely. The moon landing hoax. Okay. Okay. Let's get into this one because I have an update from NPR. So you go first okay, and then I'll add. Perfect. I don't know when I'd have to see when this article was written. So TBD. Okay. NASA landed astronauts on the moon in 1969 Mm -hmm. is when they made a landing that was lunar. Right. Uh, By the 1970s, a bizarre conspiracy emerged that the moon landing had never happened. The conspiracy was described in a 1976 self-published book, We Never Went to the Moon, America's $30 billion swindle. 
1978 movie, Capricorn One. Even as late as 2001, there were there was a Fox documentary, Conspiracy Theory, Did We Land on the Moon? That gave airtime to the claims that the whole Apollo moon landing program was faked. There are plenty of debunkings of the various moon hoax claims. And then there's the issue of the hundreds of pounds of moon rock that has been studied around the world and verified as being of extraterrestrial origins. How did NASA get the rocks, if not during a moon landing? Great question. Aliens. Checks out. Why would scientists form around the globe, like scientists from around the globe, willingly participate in the American Space Agency's hoax? That's a great question. That is a great question. Many astronauts have been offended by the implications that they faked their accomplishments. In 2002, when conspiracy theorist Bart Sibrel confronted Buzz Aldrin and called him a, quote, coward and a liar for faking the mood landing, um, that's really mean. Don't go up to somebody who landed on the moon and say, you're a coward and a liar. Agreed. Um, And then the 72-year-old punched Sibrel in the jaw. Hell yeah. Go buzz. Heck yes. (laughs) Um, All right. What's your update? Okay. So I was trying to fact check this um, because there are other countries that have been to the moon. Mm -hmm. But there are very few other countries. What I'm trying to find out is how many others have had crewed missions to the moon. Because I was listening to NPR and... um, they were talking about how China is essentially doing a new space race. The U.S. is not necessarily engaging in in it, but, like, China has a lot of space stuff happening right now. And they were saying that China plans on being on the moon, like having someone walk on the moon in 2030. Okay. Um, So I was trying to find out... I was just wanting to confirm that no one other than the United States has ever walked on the moon. Twelve people have walked on the moon. All of them were American men. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we were in a space race, right? Mm -hmm. That's what took us to the moon, is we were trying to get there before Soviet Russia, the Soviet Union. My question is, if the moon landing truly happened... Mm -hmm. Why did no one else try to also land on the moon? Like, why was it that the day that Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, or Buzz Aldrin, and the... All the people. All the people, the 10 other people who've also done it. Why is it that the Soviet Union never made it to the moon to walk on the moon? Why is it that China never made it to the moon to walk on the moon? Um, Also, it's been... Geez, what, 60 years since that? No, 50 years. Because mm-hmm. it was like near 1970. I don't know what month it was, but it was it was 69, but I don't yeah. know. So anyways, it's been a long-ass time. If we made it to the moon 50 years ago, why the hell hasn't anyone else done it? Mm-hmm. Is it no longer important because someone else already has? But that doesn't really seem like the way that politics work on our planet. Well, so it depends on what the it, so if the race was to get was to just be on the moon, 
they they brought back things to study, so maybe there wasn't the necessity to actually go there and collect the specimens themselves. But we wouldn't have shared those specimens with people from around the world. We're not going to hold up a space rock and go, you know, here. I think we did. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Girl, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, Also, I recently had this conversation with um, somebody, like, talking about the moon. And this person's adamant that we did not land on the moon and, like, has all this proof. And I'm probably doing a horrible justice to it. But my big thing is... Why has no one else done it if we did? Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying, like, I'm not putting my foot down on one side or the other of the issue. I'm just curious. Yeah. I have no dogs in this fight. Same. I have no monkeys in this pit. (laughs) Paul McCartney's death. Mm. Now, Paul McCartney is not dead. Didn't we say he was at one point? Ringo. I said Ringo was dead. Okay. I was close. So, as of mid-2022 and as of today... In 2023. Um, well, I don't know if he's still touring, but he was touring in 22. And I think he would still be touring, but I know that there was, like, COVID stuff. Um, he gives interviews. He has a website. He occasionally appears in the tabloids. Um, is this a body snatchers thing, like with Avril? He, uh-huh. Yes, this is an Avril situation. Um, but many conspiracy theorists think that he died in 1966. Oh, that's a very specific year. The Paul is dead conspiracy goes something like this. On November 9th, 1966, Paul McCarthy got into an argument with other Beatles members. He stormed out of the studio and was promptly decapitated in a car accident. Oh, shit. To cover the whole thing up, the band hired a lookalike and soundalike. That's convenient. Yeah. After going through all of this trouble, though, the band then took great pains to drop clues in their album covers and lyrics to hint to the public that something was amiss. <clears throat> it's like QAnon shit. It's like trying to make, <laughs> make a thing out of nothing. For example, on the cover of, Abbey, of the Abbey Road album, all four Beatles are photographed striding across a zebra crossing, like a yep. crosswalk. Yep. But only McCarthy... McCartney (laughs) McCartney is barefoot and he's out of step with the other three. This must mean something, right? Maybe he didn't like shoes. Maybe he just walks differently. Maybe his shoes were at the shoe cleaners. Maybe. And walking barefoot could give you a different gait than your friends. 100%. Also, we don't all walk the same. Right. Write that down. That's a little judgy. Despite public denials by the band and many other public appearances by Paul McCartney, fans couldn't just let it be. Get it? And he came together (laughs) to look for more clues. Um, So, you know, they they come... Occasionally things will come out, but uh, yeah, essentially it's a a Avril Lavigne situation where they think that uh, they swapped him out. Yeah. There's another Heather. Is her name Heather? I don't remember. That's a good deal, though, if you're going to be a body double for a celebrity. Like, you're going to want to be the body double for, like, the most popular band in the world. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Gold. Yeah. Literally, because there's a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, JFK assassination. John F. Kennedy was shot in 1963 in Dallas. He did, uh, but did Lee Harvey Oswald act alone? That is a that is a question. That's a real question. Yeah. Or was there a second gunman uh on the grassy hill. 
And was it the kid from the Umbrella Academy? Mm, also a good question. Yep. Time travel. Um, these questions are the gateway to a vast arena of conspiracy theories that have spawned endless speculation and hundreds of books, articles, and films. It didn't help that Lee Harvey Oswald was murdered in the basement of a, of a Dallas police headquarters while surrounded by police officers only two days after the assassination. Um, and by a guy who's tied to the mob. Right. So. Um, so it's not looking great. Yeah. So, but the whole thing, you know, that, that does uh, elude... That's some fishy stuff, right? Yeah. It happens. The guy who dis- did it gets killed, too. Plenty of shadowy culprits have been suspected as the mastermind of the Kennedy assassination. Fidel Castro's government or maybe, or maybe anti-Castro activist or organized crime or the CIA or Vice President Lyndon Johnson or maybe the president himself. I'm going to say probably not that one. <laughs> Somebody, maybe a close friend. <laughs> um, that would be wild, though. Like, all right. Like, orchestrating your own death. In Ooh, a, mm-hmm. Right? Is he really dead, though? Is that the conspiracy well, that we're shot, getting to? He was shot in the head. Or someone who looks very much like him and maybe sounds very much like him was shot in the head. The Paul maybe McCartney body double. The Paul McCartney <gasps> body double sidelines as a JFK body double. And they're all hanging out somewhere. The Warren Commission report, which was produced by the official investigation into the Kennedy's death, into Kennedy's death, found no evidence of overarching conspiracies, though plenty of theories still flourish. Yeah. Mm. The Roswell crash and cover-up. There's a documentary on national geographic that talks about this and like super big alien ufo whatever they're calling them now it's no longer ufos it's Mm -hmm. whatever the new term is um super big conspiracy theory so lay it on me all right there is one fact that almost all skeptics and believers agree on something crashed on a remote ranch outside of roswell new mexico in 1947 the government at first claimed that it was some sort of saucer, then restract, retracted the statement and claimed that it was really a weather balloon. Yet the best evidence suggested is that it was neither a flying saucer nor a weather balloon, but instead a high-altitude, top-secret military balloon dubbed Project Mogul. As it turns out, descriptions of the wreckage first reported by the original eyewitnesses very closely match photos of the project mogul balloons down to the silvery finish and the strange symbols on its side the stories about uh the crap you know the crash with alien bodies being there that didn't service until decades later and in fact no one considered the roswell crash as anything extraterrestrial or unusual until 30 years after when a book on the topic was published uh there was indeed a cover-up but it did not hide a crashed saucer 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 instead it hit a cold war era spying program (gasps) 
What? Bum, bum, bum. I mean, think about the balloon that they shot down off the coast of North Carolina. Oh, yeah. Sim- something similar. It's not mm-hmm. extraterrestrial, but it is government. Right, right. And that's what a lot of the UFO sightings seem to be. It's like yeah. military mm-hmm. or, you yeah. know, something similar. 100%. Um, so the documentary that I watched interviewed a kid of one of the first people on the scene mm-hmm. who was, like, tasked with picking up the debris and taking it to be inspected and like figure out what the hell this thing is. Uh-huh. And apparently this guy brought it to his kids first before taking it to um, the government government, I mm-hmm. guess FBI would yeah. be my assumption. Seems irresponsible, but okay. Right. And um, like let his kids see it and touch it. And they said that it was like super creepy and did not feel very human, human. Mm. Um, Ah, uh, gosh, I'm gonna have to remember the name of that show. I'll see if I can find it. Okay. Um, but really fascinating stuff. Whether or not you believe it, still interesting. I think it's interesting how much people believe it. I think that that's the piece that mm-hmm. intrigues me. Faith is a is a is a thing that I find fascinating. Me too. I really do. The Prodigals of the Learned Elders of Zion is a hoax anti-Semitic book that reported to reveal Jewish conspiracy to achieve world domination. Mm. The first, the, it first appeared in Russia in 1905 and describes how Christians, Christians' morality, finances, and health would be targeted by a small group of powerful Jews. The anti-Semitic idea that there is a Jewish conspiracy of is nothing new, of course, and has been repeated by many prominent people, including Henry Ford and Mel Gibson. And Kanye West. <laughs> yeah, for real. Um, in 1920, Henry Ford paid to, to have half of a million copies of the Prodigals of the Elders of Zion published. And in the 1930s, the book was used by the Nazis as justification for its genocide against Jews. In fact, Adolf Hitler referred to the Prodigals in his book, Mein Kampf. Although the book has been completely discredited as a hoax and forgery, it is still in print and remains widely circulated around the world. Fuck that shit. Satanic panic. Ooh, Mm -hmm. okay. For years during the 1980s and 1990s, America became convinced that an underground network of Satanists was working together to kidnap, torture, and abuse children. None of it was real, but the conspiracy theories destroyed lives and livelihoods. It was the more recent witch hunt. Yeah, right? for sure. That's all it was. The pinnacle was uh, Geraldo Rivera's infamous NBC special, Devil Worship, Exposing Satan's Underground, mm. which aired on October 28th, 1988. So it's a fucking like Halloween special. Right. Rivera relied on uh, self-proclaimed Satanism experts, misleading and inaccurate statistics, crimes with only tenuous links to Satanism, and sensitization media reports. Sensationalized media reports. Right. um, It was most review. It was the most reviewed documentary in television history. Really? Yes. Quote, there are over one million Satanists in this country, Rivera said, adding, quote, the odds are they're in your town. Ba-ba-bum. The panic grew out of the idea that memories of uh, abuse were often repressed and could be recovered with the help of hypnosis and, and therapy. 
The idea was popularized in the 1980 book Michelle Remembers, co-written by a Canadian psychiatrist and the patient he eventually married, ethical red flag, ethical red flag, uh, in which the um, in which Michelle recovers memories of supposed satanic rituals and abuse conducted by her mother. In 1983, the satanic or the panic exploded when uh, McMartin preschool trial, uh, which was in California, it was where parents were accused, uh, accusing the daycare owners of sexually abusing their their son. Uh, Police then sent a letter to the parents warning that their child may have been abused, urging the parents to ask uh, what turned out to be like very leading questions. Have you heard of this? No. Um, Like basically something happened at the daycare um, and then uh, they go home. They encourage the parents to go home and ask the questions to their kids about has anything happened. So they end up asking them very leading questions. Right, right. And what comes out is like the kids, they're like, well... Basically, they're asking questions that somehow made them assume that there was satanic worship happening at this preschool Holy, daycare. Talk about a leading question. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they're chill. You know, they're they're uh, they're babies. Wee babes. They own their they're wee babes. Um, yeah. What kind of leading question could you ask? Uh, how many? chickens were killed Mm -hmm. by your teacher on tuesday right exactly like what's the answer to that yeah so this went on for seven years um where they were uh you know being followed up with police obviously their business suffered but after seven years the daycare owners were eventually acquitted or had the charges dismissed one was able to still run a daycare that whole time no way no way figured okay one was jailed for five years while awaiting trials and retrials shit um in the meantime a similar accusation spread through daycares around the country most were spurred only by now discredited methods of questioning small children methods that often led to children making sensational accusations because they wanted to please the authority figures questioning them yep In 1992, reports on ritual crime, FBI agent Kenneth Lanning concluded that the rampant rumors around the ritual Satanism were unfounded. Rampant rumors around ritual Satanism. Hell yeah. Rampant rumors around (laughs) ritual Satanism. Um, I didn't have an issue with that one, though. Um, Philip Stevens Jr., associate professor of anthropology at the United or at the State University of New York at Buffalo, said that the widespread allegations of crimes by Satanists, quote, constitute the greatest hoax perpetuated upon the American people in the 20th century. Wow. Mm. Chemtrails. Okay. Let's talk about this one. You talk about it. I genuinely know a person who believes that chemtrails or that contrails are chemtrails so contrails being the white lines that you see in the sky after a jet passes over Mm -hmm. and it's because the jets are flying at really high altitude and um the warm air coming out of the jet engine like is evaporating and essentially like forms these visible crystals Mm-hmm. crystal dewdrop things yeah a cloud a cloud of. yeah it's a little cloud behind mm-hmm. your airplane leading you to the rainbow mm-hmm. um but i know of at least one person who genuinely believes that the government is trying to poison us by releasing chemicals in jet engines wow. over top of us and it's making us sick 
I'm like, girl, it's what happens when hot air meets cold air. It's called science. Look it up. Yep. It's not Agent Orange, dude. Right. Exactly. So as airplanes travel, I'm just going to say exactly what you said. Please. Um, they leave behind uh, they leave behind them long water condensation trails called contrails. Uh, these cloud-like tracks dissipate quickly. But to some conspiracy theories, th- some conspiracy theorists, these condensation trails are much more nefarious. The chemtrails conspiracy theory holds that condensation trails are full of other chemicals that scientists and the government are sending into the atmosphere. Why? Pick your reason. (laughs) (laughs) Choose your own adventure. It might be biological warfare or population control or geoengineering or an attempt to manipulate the weather. Ooh, that's a good one. That That is fun. Yeah, that's better. Mm -hmm. Uh, Researchers who study things like cloud impacts uh, on global temperatures and often are often harassed by chemtrail believers who think that they're part of a larger scale conspiracy to secretly spray unknown chemicals into the atmosphere. According to Harvard University's David Keith, um, a 2016 study even debunked chemtrails scientifically, finding no evidence of of unusual unusual contrails or unexpected uh, contaminations into the environment. But true believers weren't swayed as the guardians reported in 2017. Of course they weren't. So, I mean, I get it. Like if you don't trust the system, you're not going to trust the study that they've done to disprove the thing that you believe is true. Right. I got it. Barack Obama's birth certificate. Okay. See, Barack Obama may have done this one to himself when he showed the beginning of The Lion King at whatever award dinner it was. Do you remember that? No. Oh, my gosh. It was hilarious. So, he, Barack Obama's making a speech, and he's like, there are a lot of people who doubt uh, where I was born, the validity of my birth. Uh-huh. Well, I have found video footage oh. of my birth. And <laughs> on the big screen behind him, you just hear, ah, oh, yeah. That's fucking hilarious. And, like, you see um, Rafiki holding up Simba. Uh-huh. And it's so funny. That is, that's brilliant. He may have been our funniest president. Mm-hmm. That's hilarious. So, he brought that one on himself. So, some conspiracies, like chemtrails, um... They, they kind of fall into the background. They don't have, like, a larger public impact. It's not really hurting anybody. But others have really big impacts. Uh, the Barack Obama birtherism conspiracy is one of those. Mm-hmm. Barack Obama, the 44th president of the United States of America, was born in 1961 in Honolulu, Hawaii. But as soon as Obama began his campaign for presidency in 2008, the birthers began to circulate the conspiracy theory that Obama had actually been born in Kenya, the country of his father. They argued that this meant that Obama was not a natural-born citizen of the U.S., even though his mother was an American citizen, and thus he could not be president. Right. Never mind that there were announcements of Obama's birth in the Honolulu newspaper or that friends or Obama's mother remembers the day she went into labor. Um, to combat the conspiracies, Obama not only had to release a copy of his birth certificate in 2008, he had to follow up with a release of the original long-form document in 2011. Contrary to the hospital's usual policy of issuing computer copies of birth certificates as acceptable identification. 
in 2011, or the 2011 release reduced the number of Americans who believed in birtherism, according to um, a poll. But many uh, conservative political activists were, uh, you know... Won't be fooled. No. Um, and, you know, they, they continue to push back. Um, and Donald Trump was one of the people who, of course, was... Of course he was. But we can't get him to release his tax returns, so... Hmm. I remember when this was happening. And I think when there are um, campaigns going on, political campaigns, people just try to distract from anything. They just throw a bunch of shit at the wall and see what sticks. Of course. Yeah. And it tends to be effective. Yeah. So, COVID-19 and 5G. There are conspiracies about the origins of the virus as well as basically every government's reaction. Many people even believe doctors are lying about COVID-related deaths, blaming the virus for deaths without, you know, that were for other or with other causes. Um, A distrust of big pharma. um, kind of overflowed for years surrounding, you know, COVID-19. Um, and there were a lot of conspiracies around uh, the vaccine, obviously. A lot of things were going on with COVID-19, mm-hmm. right? One of the otter conspiracies um, mixed along a long-standing fear of the 5G wireless technology with fears about the virus. Have you heard of this? I have, actually, but I don't remember much about it. Well... I just remember people thinking it was going to be, like, mind control and was going to yeah. change everything about technology, and I haven't noticed a big difference. <laughs> I'm fine. According to the COVID 5G conspiracy, electromagnetic frequencies from cell phone towers undermined the immune system, ma- making people sick with COVID. Um, researchers reported in 2020 in the journal Media International Australia. Ooh, that is a fun conspiracy theory. I have not heard that one. Another conspiracy theory claims that COVID-19 vaccines contain tracking chips that connected connect to 5G networks so that That's the government the or possibly billionaires and vaccine philanthropist uh, Bill Gates could surveil everyone's you know movements. Because having cell phones attached to us 24-7 is not enough. Yeah. As CNBC points out, 5G chips are too large to fit through a vaccine syringe. And even the smallest chips that could fit require a power source that couldn't make the squeeze. Right. Mm. So, not possible. Not possible. The Denver International Airport is a quirky place known for its offbeat art. Gargoyles overlook the baggage claims, murals depict scenes of war and horror, and there's a 32-foot blue horse with red eyes uh, presiding over the road leading in and out of the terminal. I think I have a picture of it somewhere. Remind me to see if I can find it. Okay. All of its weirdness, combined with the municipal drama surrounding the airport's construction, the project went almost three three million dollars over three billion dollars over budget holy shit sparked an array of conspiracy theories the most common according to the denver public library is that the airport is secretly the headquarters of the new world order the illuminati the reptilian or some other shadowy groups with plans to take over the world it would be a great spot like yeah having a headquarters at an airport seems super convenient it does 
I mean, it's smart. It's super smart. To bolster these beliefs, theorists spin alternative alternative explanations of the airport's odd decor. For example, an inlay in the floor with the symbols of gold and silver, uh, referencing Colorado's mining history, became a secret message about a made-up uh, pathogen known as the Australian antigen. Ooh. A mural uh, decrying war and wishing for world peace became a warning about totalitarian, about a to- totalitarian future. It feels like national treasure. Mm-hmm. Three. It's like a mad lib of weird conspiracy. Right, right. Um, it's just a fun little hodgepodge. All of this is built, according to the theorist, on top of a six-story deep bunker where the elites will hunker down to ride out the end of the world. Or maybe it's a prison for, uh, you know, people. Mm. Monkeys. <laughs> With isolation chambers yeah. called the pits of despair. Of course, those are, there's no evidence of anything beneath the airport besides maintenance tunnels, a baggage transport system, um, and, you know, hurried travelers moving between terminals on an underground train. But that doesn't stop those who want to believe in something more nefarious beneath the airline hub. And that, my friend, is my shallow dives into conspiracy theories conspiracy theories are so great and you did such a wonderful job this was fun so fun so season three look out we'll be throwing some more conspiracies on there absolutely how do we link up our two topics okay so i think we just pits of despair pits of despair Mm -hmm. under the denver correct airport Mm -hmm. also conspiracy theories are about people finding communities to feel close to other people connecting yep yep i think to debunking may have a role like people debunking conspiracy theories conspiracy theories debunking history because some of them have proved to be true over the years like there were conspiracy theories about the assassination of martin luther king that mm-hmm. later you know were sort of proved to be mm-hmm. less conspiracy and more true mm-hmm. um so maybe in the science of monkeys debunking the theories that children don't need affection and love boom i don't know i don't know embroider that on a pillow (laughs) gorgeous what the i don't know part the uh the everything before that part yep yep i think the thing that all of these have in common is that they can be found on pod without an odd there we go love it find us on instagram Find us on Instagram, y'all. Join Patreon. We have just covered all five cocktail recipes. So we will be drinking them throughout the season. We will also be reading reviews that people have left. We're super excited. Uh, We've had so much fun season two. It's just, it's been way more fun than season one. So much more fun. And we're only halfway through. And yet we're already halfway through. And I hold those two things like with so many mixed emotions. I know. Um, But so much more to come. So many more fun. Um conversations and quips and who knows maybe we'll throw some more conspiracy theories in there from time to time we love you and if you support us blink twice and if you're out there keep listening thank you for listening to podcast without an audience find us on social media at pod without an odd you can find us on instagram or facebook or find us on the web at podcast without an audience.com shoot us an email at pod without an odd at gmail.com 
Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.